there guys and welcome back to Lawfinder, a Pathfinder history podcast by the Hobble Goblin Company. Today we are learning more about Infernal Cheliax and to help me we have a special, another special guest, PJ McGaw, member of Nat20 Productions. PJ, welcome. Thank you for having me here. More than welcome and please let us know your history in Pathfinder, the world of Pathfinder, but also in your running any games or playing games in Cheliax. Awesome. Okay. Well, hello everyone. Great to see you. Mine will hear you talk to you. My name is PJ McGough, uh, as, as they said, from Natural Man Productions. My experience with Pathfinder started, I would say, probably as early back as 2010. Very first character ever was a gunslinger. Much like when everyone does their first time, it did not go well. My experience playing in the world of Chelyax, or I'm sorry, the world of Galarian, with regards to Chelyax, actually got started with uh, the very first adventure path, uh, everyone knows about Rise of the Rune Lords, uh, a solid starter piece. You know, you have you have the Verisians, and you have kind of the the greater a- uh, effect that Chiliax has, not only just on their own citizens, but the world around them, the territories around them, and also uh, jumping into uh, the adventure path. I want to say there was a party game that they had in in like the twelve. Almost 12. Not not as many as you, sir. In the, the 10 years I've been playing with Pathfinder, I'd say at some point or another, everything goes back to either Absalom or Cheliax. And that will lead us straight into where we always start with this. Speaking of the fact that Cheliax is almost the BBEG of countries in this world, being the infernal country that it is, the lawful evil aligned country, let's take a dive back into the history for when Cheliax first kind of appeared in the history books. Unlike a lot of the other cultures, like Numeria, which we talked about last week, there's not a huge amount of inf- of pre-AR reckoning information about Cheliax. The real first historical record we have is in uh, 1520 AR by Absalom Reckoning, when Corinton is established by General Corin of Taldor's Third Army of Exploration. It was also secured the western tip of Avistan and the neck of the inner sea for Taldor. Because at this time, it was obviously not its own country. Uh, The third army of exploration having pushed direct west as opposed to the first two which went north. Uh, It means that Taldor is just claiming its expansion and at this point in time it basically taken over most of Avistan. And it's really interesting to note about Taldor is that they were always kind of raised up as like the first heroic fantasy nation. Uh, you know, had like a lot of knights and leaders and powerful people. And, and I'm sure there are some characters here and there in the timeline that fell short. But all of the, like the research in Chiliax talking about Taldor paint it in a very mostly positive light. So it's weird that, you know, to coming from something so so shining and then it's going to and then it's going to make a very stark Sure, turn in about 1500 years but we're actually going to take a time jump forward as I said there's not a lot of information pre them becoming their own country but in 2555 AR when all of the clerics were expelled from Rahadum they actually sought refuge across the, the uh, inner sea in Corinton uh, because of this construction began on the Arch of Aridon took 51 years for, the, for them to complete that the Arch of Aradon being a huge bridge, basically, that connected Avastan to Garund. And at the time, it also basically blocked off and forced control of the Inner Sea region to Taldor. Now, obviously, this will come up later when Cheliax becomes its own nation, uh, and Taldor may lose control of the Arch itself. But that is one of the crowning achievements of Taldor, because that is a huge stretch of land to be building a giant bridge across. Sorry, water, not land. 
an incredible feat of engineering, which is why it took 51 years for them to complete. Yeah. Now, it's, it's funny because, like, both ends, if I recall, both ends are part of the nation of Chelyaks, like, when they, when they built the arch. But then again, of course, this goes into much further history. Um, but there is a lot of history, though, with, with Rahadum and, and, and a bunch of other port cities uh, as this giant massive bridge, like I said, over water, connects a lot of the western part of the inner sea through trade and, and naval traffic. So it's, it, it, I think it started off as uh, a metaphor and turned later into the road, like into this massive and kind of tragic symbol for the inner sea region in that area. Definitely. But about 400 years after that was finished, Chelyax was formally incorporated as a province of Taldor rather than just a frontier region. Corinton was pretty much the only settlement uh, in the area up until about that time. And then the Taldorans started spreading out through what is modern-day Chelyax, planting small civil- like farming civilizations and mining, um, mining towns and everything throughout that region itself. Now we're about the three thousands right now, right? In this point in time when they when they're starting to do their their, their expansions, mm-hmm. or just just in the cusp, because it's around that time that you start getting the invasion of the Kaldans into uh, the Taldor, and this is kind of the pivotal moment in history. This is the breaking point that starts really everything for Cheliax. because at that point, if I recall correctly, Taldor was fighting a war on two fronts with the Kaldan invaders. And they weren't doing a very solid job of that. And the leaders of the time that were in the Chelyax frontier province looked at this and thought, like, this is our this is our opportunity to break off from Taldor. Yeah, so it was in 4081 AR, a thousand years after they were formally incorporated as a province, that they broke ranks with Taldor. Uh, because of the Kadiran uh, war that was going on on Taldor's eastern border, and they established themselves, created their own throne, and of course, the ruling that throne was Aspex the Even Tongue. He used his power uh, and the fact Taldor's might was turned to the east to essentially go on. A, a lot of it was diplomatic. He didn't actually necessarily invade all these countries. They took over Andorin, Galt, and Iska, and annexed all of them from, Chal- from Taldor and made them part of Cheliax at the time. And it started, and basically this is known as the Eventung Conquest, where Cheliax pushed eastward and started undermining everything that was Taldor at the time. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I know, I want to say it was 4305 when they started to get uh, Varicia and Belkzen, but that was during the Ever War. That's, that's much later. That's, yeah, so that's a couple of hundred years later, the Ever War. During that Eventung Conquest, one of the weirdest things and the strangest things that I love is that they even convinced the, the Strix people, uh, the bird people of Devil's Perch, to join Cheliax. And that region itself is still a part of Cheliax today, even after everything that's happened. As much as they don't really incorporate or in, actually do anything with Cheliax, uh, the Strix are still technically part of the Cheliaxian Empire. Yeah, uh, 100%. They, they come from those mountaintops, which is funny because even in, in the, the current lore, the Pathfinder 2E lore, they still hail from that mountaintop within the Chiliax uh, area. And though those mountains are considered, you know, Chilaxian land, the Strix, they don't consider themselves Chilaxians by their, by their own merit. Uh, of course, you know, try telling that to a, a Chilaxian census taker, they're going to beat them over the head and put them in iron collar no matter what. But that's... That's neither here nor there, as they say. <laughs> Just slightly prior to the Eventung Conquest as well, it's important to note that Chalaxian Provincial Commander actually moved uh, the capital of Cheliac from Ostenso to West Crown, 
Uh, so essentially from a port facing towards Taldor, it, sw- it moved it over to the Divian River, uh, which helped them get like more access to the center region of Cheliax, which meant that they could pass information quicker, uh, trade goods could move quicker up and down the river as well. And from that, it kind of helped solidify the power base of Cheliax, which is what led to that revolt and their essential independence 100 years afterwards. But then we're ju- going to jump forward. The Eventung Conquest went for 10 years, roughly. 40 years after that, in 4137 AR, uh, under the banner of the Mad Prince Haliad I, Cheliax decided, hmm, Absalom looks nice. They're not doing much right now. Let's besiege them, like so many people have tried to beforehand. Unsuccessfully besieged by Absalom. Absalom has never been overtaken. It's, um, well, we talked about this with Vanessa Hoskins, uh, in our episode four, one of the writers who, one of the women who helped write the book, thankfully. Uh, and yes, they failed miserably at that. Uh, but they did make gains in Garund that essentially gave Cheliax control of the Arch of Aridon that we were talking about. Which really, as, as, as you were saying before, PJ, it really cemented their naval supremacy. True. One of their biggest things is their standing military. And that naval leg is, is very crucial. What is interesting about Absalom... The, the battle, of course, absolute failure. And I guess the meta is like Absalom's the good city. The good city can't lose to the bad city. But what's interesting is in the offshoot of uh, Absalom around Diabel, there is actually a Chelish port in Diabel. I believe it's called uh, I believe it's called Hellport, actually. Pretty straightforward. But yeah, if, you ever, if you're ever playing a campaign or if you're playing a game in Absalom and you skip over the, the, the massive water from Absalom to its nearby neighbor of Diabel, there's still a... Chalaxian naval stronghold, naval port. But the funny thing is, is after they lost this battle and they no longer saw Absalom as uh, a military advantage, they just scuttled it. It's still 100% a a, uh, Chalaxian port. There's no one there. I love that. I love when they do stuff like that in Pathfinder. So sometime, and they don't really give you a rough time on this though, while the Arch of Aridon did give them supremacy, sometime in the intervening 400 years after they captured it, the center of the arch collapsed, which kind of made it a no longer viable to be a bridge because basically a third of the entire bridge collapsed near the ocean. But as we talked about last week, it did lead to the Gilman taking the arch stone from the center of the bridge and giving it to Andor at some point several hundred years later when Andor gained its independence. But even though the bridge itself has collapsed, it is still, because they still claim the southern and northern portions of it, it still helps Cheliax to this day with their naval power. A year after they claimed it, the Chelias ships actually arrived in Desperation Bay on Garan's west coast as part of their colonial efforts, and they established the colony of Sargava. For those who may not know what Sargava is, uh, I'm currently running with the rest of the Hobblegoblin crew once we can get back to recording, because we're in lockdown again. Savage Tide Adventure Path, which obviously dips a little bit into the Isle of Dread uh, from 3.5 Greyhawk. Sargava is basically the Pathfinder version of that. Have you read much about Sargava yourself, PJ? Or adventured there at all? You know, I don't believe I've been, as a player, blessed to go to Sargava, but I do find it kind of an interesting nation, uh, as it did break away from the motherland of, of Cheliax, and it's it's one of those, it looks like to be one of the places protected by the free captains of the Shackles. It's definitely kind of like this, this, this port city, and it's interesting, because looking, just looking at the iconography, 
right? You can see the Cheliac's colors, you know, the heavy black, the heavy red, the, the, the very evil iconography. But, uh, you know, it, it takes place, or the Sargava, if, I, if I'm correct, it's somewhere near the Mwangi Expanse, right? Yeah, so it's d- down south of the Mwangi Expanse on the western coast, basically. Yeah, so it's kind of like a, like a, like a Freedom Bay off the coast of, uh, it's um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what part of the Mwangi Expanse it would be near, but uh, yeah, but it's near the Island of the Shackles, and this this is happening around 4111 AR, I think, when when all of the shackles and everything else that I'm mentioning kind of comes in, into play. But you're also getting a bit of a tragedy around 4717, 4720. Um, and then it becomes a different empire entirely. But we'll get to that when we get to that. But yeah, so it's like a, a small island of all the things you don't want from the Wangi Expanse, plus dinosaurs, <laughs> which is amazing, and I love it. As uh, PJ mentioned, we will get to that in a second. Jump forward again another 200 years, and we're up to Emperor Haladad Third after the Mad Prince. And Emperor Haladad Third began a century of expansion, the Ever War. Mm-hmm when the Chelish forces spread out uh, northwards. Uh, they essentially invaded Malthoon first, which surrendered six years later, and they also went through another couple of lands as well. Yeah, I know that uh, with the Ever War happening under King Lyad III, this was, this was kind of like their big push for um, expansionism as an empire. Yeah, so it was also known as the Wars of Expansion. Exactly. And that's what kind of makes it interesting, because up to this time, you have military conflicts, you have them trying to take smaller places, and like, of course, losing those places somewhere down the road. This felt like a really huge push to collect some nations, and, and, I, and, and they, did, they did get some nations, you know, Varicia, which even to this day still has, not culturally, but some physical Chalaxian elements. Like, there is uh, a Cheliac's presence in Varicia and the travelers of Varicia. I can't speak much on the Bel- on on Belkson, unfortunately. I'd- they end up getting knocked back because at that time Belkson was Dragon Run. Mm, um, that's why. So they got knocked back by the hold of Belkson. Yeah, but they did claim uh, swathes of obviously Malthoon, uh surrendered to them. Nadal as well. Uh, they tried to invade, but they did surrender as well in forty three thirty eight AR. Then Cheliacs kind of heavily influenced their culture, their trade, and their practices as well, which was very strange considering Nadal was such a xenophobic nation before that. Yeah, which which is, but that's kind of the irony, right? Like Nadal was very xenophobic, and Cheliacs, they're not exactly xenophobic, but the way their government works, it definitely plays heavily on that. So I could see where assimilation might be easier for the for the Nadal zeitgeist to to kind of go lockstep there. Because if I recall correctly, Nadal is still a part of, uh, in like later uh, history, still a part of the Chalaxian Empire. It is for a long time, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you also get, like, I think you already said Malthoon. Uh, Isker. Isker is, yeah, yeah, you mentioned Isker. Nermathus, am I forgetting one more? And then just the tracks of Varicia, because it wasn't, it was during this ever war uh, that they actually found a Corvosa. And Corvosa becomes a big part of kind of that future from there on out. Especially, especially like, in the, the whole Rise of the Rune Lords area, like Varicia, Corvosa, Nadal, um, a handful of others that I'm blanking on right now. It definitely became its own little thing. Uh, we will get to that in a moment. But after the Everwar finished, uh, 4410 AR, uh, it was about another 160 years later that one of my favorite things about Cheliax, the first Hell Knight Order, which happened to be the Order of the Rack, was founded in Westground. 
We're not going to go into the Hell Knight orders and everything now. We're going to go into that in part two. But I absolutely love the Hell Knights. I think they are an inc incredibly interesting organization. Just from the way that they're made and their history and their belief system. And yeah, this is, we have like a founding date for them, which I also love. 100%. I'm also a big fan of uh, the Hell Knights. And, it, and it's around this time, too, when the Hell Knights are, are made um, in the, the city of West Crown, in the capital city of West Crown, that there's a lot of really cool things happening in Shelly kicking off at once. I think it's really, as much as the military expansion is kind of fascinating to see how that affects the world, this is the point where... Cheliax, as we know it today, starts to really come into, you know, the the diabolism and everything else. So this is the 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 crux I feel of the fascination of its of the, of the culture. They definitely start leaning into that more neutral side of humanity, the lawful neutralness of of Aradin even more than any of the good line a good lean that Aradin did have. And it was 30 years after this, actually, speaking of Aradin, which we go through every episode. In 4606, Aradin dies. If you don't know that by this point in time, you're really not listening to these episodes very well. For the country of Cheliax, which really was the most powerful country in the inner sea at this point in time, it left the Empire without their divine mandate, and again, several weeks of storms rolled through Galarian, and it just crippled the nation itself so much that Nidal at this time was like, we're free! And Chelias couldn't do crap. Like, they were in such introspective state at that point in time that when Nadal was like, you guys look like you're having a problem, we're not going to be your province anymore, we're going to be our own country, Chelias did nothing. Because two years later, the Civil War began. Mm -hmm. Or the War of a Hundred Kings. And it lasted decades. Now, this is... This is there's a lot of interesting and weird things about the Chilish Civil War, as well as the year 4606, and I think this might just be bad note-taking, because uh, in 4606, it's often said that that is when Aradin died. However, the Starfall Doctrine said that that is when he was supposed to return in human form and lead the human race to a millennia of prosperity known as the Ages of Glory. So, I, there, there's kind of a weird discrepancy in the notes there. I think I think there's been some some lore that has been disseminated with, with some oopsie-daisies in the text. But regardless of what's interesting about 4606 is the Starfall Doctrine, the sort of religious manifest destiny, is also kind of part of what forced the stripping of the divine mandate, the, the god rule, and forced the, the, the civil war in the first place. And with the, with the, just the Hundred King War, you know, you got House Thrun, which has been a big, I hate to say it, thorn in the side of, I want, I, remind me, I want to say they were, they were antagonistic to one of the Heliads at, at one point, and this might have been during this beginning of the Civil War. I think you are uh, pretty right on that one. Yeah, and King Gaspadar, he was, he was the king at this point in time during the Sarfal Doctrine. That was, that was the, the person who's like, I'm the god king, I speak for the gods. That was being stripped from them. And just the rival families. You know, it kind of reminds me of, what was it, the 100-year war, the War of the Roses a little bit. And it, it's a, it was a 30-year civil war, give or take. And it was just everyone kind of rising up for themselves. Because, of course, House Throne kicked it off in 4608 when they were feuding over land with the rival family. Uh, and they started it, and so everyone else started it. It was also during the war, then 4632, that Malthum was like, hmm, Nadal left... 
No one seems to be watching us either, so maybe we'll leave. <laughs> they made a break for it. Uh, which was perfect timing in this. Uh, even during this war, I think even Corvosa was like, uh, we're just going to cut ties as well. And that was like a year after Malthoon left. Everyone could sign, kind of see this shit hitting the fan. And then we we're like, yeah, we're out, team. Yeah, if you're ever if you're ever going to get out while the getting's good, do it when everyone's killing each other. That's when you just bat. It's like playing Super Smash. Like, you see everyone's like 8v8. They're all beating each other up. That's when you just go, you know what? I'm just going to sit over here, let you do you. And when you're dead, I'm going to pick up the pieces. Yeah, exactly right. But obviously this three-decade-long war was dragging on and had the whole country in turmoil. And there was no clear victor even after the decades of fighting. So Abigail of House Thune signed a pact with the powers of hell, which put her and her family under their control. Uh, in return for this, they received a number of devils to bolster their forces and assist her as advisors, because who's better with law and order than devils? Thankfully, using this help she brought the Chelish heartland under her control which gave her a fair amount of legitimacy and then when they went to war with house divian in the battle of a hundred kings held near the city of Corinton, the first city in Cheliax in 4639 house thune defeated all comers and abrigail became, became queen abrigail the first and once again we see the rise of uh kind of what puts this nation on the map is interesting the diabolism it's not just i mean yeah it was made out of desperation with the civil war and what was fascinating from from that time onward after 4640 when queen abigail the first was crowned no one wanted to be ruled by devils the people were very much aware this was not a secret you know this was a, di- a diabolist nation now but they like they liked the anarchy less you know, of like just 100 local lords vying for land. So they were just kind of accepting it for what it was. But they still not forgotten the betrayal of Baron Gralis, one of those individuals. And so they had to go back to Sargova in 4643 AR, basically to try and get that land back during during all the all the civil warring and people breaking off. You know, and this is, of course, when you get uh, the Shackle Pirates coming into uh, Sargava and, and that whole part being affected, how the pirates got there. Desperation Bay. And again, in 4660, when there's another battle for independence with Sargava. Yeah, so they sent, they, they sent a second fleet in 4660, uh, and the Shackle Pirates was stopped them again. Mm-hmm. Which is strange, considering they're the Navy powerhouse of the NSC region, and they've got some issues with some free pirates. Yeah, like, the, the free captains and the firebrands, like, they strike me as formidable single entities. But I, it does beg the question of how did Cheliax, a superior military nation, both on land and sea, sail their navy down to Sargava around, you know, Desperation Bay and, and, and everything else, and lose to a bunch of pirates that basically, to this point, didn't have a ton of massive-scale navy experience. Back home in Cheliax, of course, as you were mentioning, Diabolism and the worship of Asmodeus was being made into the official state religion. They moved the capital from West Crown, which is where it had been moved pre-independence, uh, to the port of Agorian, and then they demanded renewed fealty, basically, from the outlying provinces. Although, due to the shift to Diabolism, uh, Andoran and Galt both rebelled against Cheliax at this point in time, Galt de- declaring its own independence in 4667, and Andoran following suit in 4669 AR. 
for which there wasn't a huge amount of ramifications from Chelyax. I think, again, because of that introspection that they were kind of doing, and also the, their focus on trying to get back Sargava. <laughs> they didn't really care. Also, something important to be mentioned, uh, they did at one point in time, they are one of the only countries that has sailed across the Arcadian Ocean to make settlements on Arcadia itself. There is two settlements over there, was two settlements over there. One's Anchor's End, and the other one was Canoris. But Canoris was attacked and destroyed at some point, and all the survivors moved to Anchor's End. So Anchor's End is the only standing Chelish colony in Arcadia at this point in time. The only other people over there being, of course, the Linorm Kings in Valenhall. But it does provide the Chelish Empire with a steady stream of golden slaves captured from the local population. Because Cheliax is going to be Cheliax wherever they are. Yeah, yeah, you don't you don't rise up as a fascist government and and find natural resources and don't take it. In fact, I want to say last I checked, every almost every single halfling within the borders of Cheliax is usually pressed into servitude immediately. So being being a free halfling in Cheliax is at least lore as written tragically not likely. Yeah, very, very low probability, realistically speaking. It also just seems weird. Of, of all the, the people that you could find to put under Iron Collar, I understand it's easier when they're literally half your size, but it seems less practical to me. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they're going to be doing a lot of heavy labor. Yeah, the, yeah like, they're, the things you're going to make them do are literally three times their body mass. I'm not saying the Strix are better, but at least they can fly. Problem being, they're also stronger than a normal human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they start at CR4 before you have any class levels. Obviously, a lot did happen between the time that they turned inwards and the modern day. A lot of mysterious deaths, a lot of the rulers of different parts of Cheliax kind of kept dying up until we have uh, Abigail II currently on the throne, I believe. Uh, One of those things being in 4717, which is equivalent to 2017, sorry. Yeah, 2017, our time. Uh, So a couple of years ago now. Sargadia became its own country by the name of Vidrian when it broke free from Cheliax completely and free from the free captains. So it is well and truly out of the grasp of Cheliax at this point in time. Obviously, another couple of things broke free. I, I believe that Vaya also broke free. I wouldn't be surprised because I know I know Vaya is definitely within the Cheliax uh, Empire land. I forgot the date it broke free. But I mean, just considering that entire city is a church of Norgaber, I, I don't, I don't know how they could stand in one empire at all for any amount of time. No, they did well to keep it as long as they did. I think that's true. I, also, around this time, you got some other breakoffs as well. We we still have, I believe, to this day, Varicia and Nadal. I think are still strong in the uh, empire kit at this point. Well, Corvosa, having broken ties, is still very closely allied with Cheliax. Like, it's not necessarily part of the Empire, because it did break ties, but it's so close as well. And Magnamar, even, to do any trading, they have to go through the Arch of Aridon. So, there's still a lot of control that Cheliax has over the region, even if it's not technically within the Empire. Nadal, as well, having broken free the year that Aridon died, kind of has its own... The Umbral Court kind of takes over most of that at this point in time now as well. So it's not as big as it once was, but it's not to say that the country itself is by any means weak, especially with its navy and its army. 
Alright, we're going to take a quick musical break. We'll be back. We're going to talk about Cheliacs now. Join us soon. See ya. and welcome back. Alright, we're going to take this time to dive into some of the geography of Cheliacs, the different um, arch duchies as they are known in Cheliacs opposed to regions. PJ, I'm going to let you kick it off with the first arch duchy, please. Alright, well the arch duchy of Hellcoast, the hills, the Devil's Perch, settlements of uh, Pezek, that's where you get the Strix birds, right? The, the Devil's Perch, Strix, goes hand in hand. If you don't know the streaks, they are a race of winged humanoids. And that area is kind of fascinating because they, they're they still within the Empire, but they don't like House Thrun, which is, you know, the leading house of the Empire, and they don't like the organized devil worship. And knowing kind of how Chiliax takes to descent, it's kind of a shock that uh, they haven't sent Hell Knights in to crush their skulls. But right now, yeah, the, the Hell Coast is still a uh, an archduchy, an arch ducky. Ah, oh, man, I can never get this right. I never, arch it always du- throws my duchy. head. Duchy. An archduchy. Man, you know when you know a word and then you say it, you're like, mm, that's not right. That's not how that's said. But yeah, it's just on the western coastline of Chiliacs. Got your, your Strix birds living there. And again, it's, just, it's funny that they are the closest thing to official descent in the nation that is allowed without boot crushing skull. Exactly. And, it, like, so, for a, ge- a geography point of view, it takes up the whole western coastline, basically, from the mouth of the Maestas River all the way south to the gap between the Menador Mountains and the Ravenel Forest. Also, fun little fact, one of the only one of only two of the archduchies that doesn't actually have an archduke because it was House of Davianland, uh, and they never appointed anyone after the, they were defeated in the Battle of a Hundred Kings. And, and I believe it was... I want to say Abigail put a rule in that they were not allowed to have uh, another arch, arch, do, dookie. Damn it, arch, Dutch, Dutch. arch dookie. What's an arch dookie? I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically being like governed by a paraduke instead, uh, one of the smaller dukes within Cheliax. In the meantime. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's a good way to stop dissent. If they actually have no political power, they can have all the opinions they want. Tragic and true. But I think it does, obviously, in what you were saying, that it is one of the most disputed, semi-borderline, rebellious places. Because there's even a couple of, like, independent cities, like the independent city of Windspire and the town of uh, Siriscree, uh, one of them obviously being the largest gnome settlement in the Inner Sea region crazily enough as that is being in Cheliacs and they're not slaves because they focus all about uh, architecture and building stuff surprisingly alright but we'll kick on to the next Archduchy of Ravenel alright so it's um, it's interesting because modern day it's kind of it's own burgeoning confederation it was formerly part of Cheliacs, but it's kind of succeeded now. But for all intents and purposes, we're going to keep talking about it as part of Cheliacs because there's not going to be enough information to kind of do its own episode on this. But it has, at this point in time, in a modern day, which is 47 to 1 by Absalom Reckoning, 
become its own country of Ravenel. It was formerly the Kintago being the major city of Ravenel. So originally there was the Lord Mayor, Julia Bainalus, uh, was the Lord Mayor of Kintago, and now she's the domina of basically the whole place. Now that they broke free of Cheliax itself. Yeah, what I what I find fascinating about the culture here is that it's they broke free from Chiliax, but they still remain in good relations with Chiliax and Adal. Probably, of course, because they're they're so landlocked. They're not landlocked, but they're 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 close by. As I'm trying to say, and they prefer the title, uh, the political power and structure of the Domina, which is a title that fell out of use when House. Uh, Thrun took over Chiliac, so they still have some of the old attaches of the culture and politics, but, you know, kind of being left their own, they, they definitely grown different things, like the, the Silver Council, which is a bunch of uh, noble houses from Kentargo, Kentargan Kintar- noble houses, if you will, who replaced the old court of coin and kind of created their, their own system, which is kind of like a hand-me-out for the rebellion that happened. You know, kind of like an attaboy for still supporting the Empire during the times of rebellion in the past. And so this all happened around 4717. If you want to know more about why uh, why Ravenel kind of broke free, or the Archduchy of Ravenel, uh, feel free to jump in and have a read, or maybe you can convince someone to run it for you, Hell's Rebels, because it's kind of off the back of that adventure path that it kind of gained its independence. But we'll dive into the next Archduchy, of Menador. So it's named because of the Menador Mountains that stretch across much of the region and encompasses the strip of northern Cheliax from Devil's Perch in the west all the way across to Isca. Basically, the whole northern border of Cheliax the Menador Mountains. Around the southern border, you have the Barrowwood, the fields of Kellum, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and the Whisperwood. The capital is Cantaria, which is located on the Sidna River, which is north of the Barrowwood. Uh, this is where House uh, Norik. Norik- I can never get their name right. Noricopolis maintains its rule over the region. It's a very Greek name, that one. Oh, it is. Noricopolis, I think it would be. I think you're right. Noricopolis. That is exactly how you would pronounce that. The region itself relies heavily on minerals and slaves from the mountains. Uh, That's their main trade. Uh, They don't trade just with Chiliax. Uh, A lot of merchant caravans travel through. All the way over to Nadal as well. Because... Essentially, it is the one way to get from Nadal to Igorian. So it's almost like the trade route has to go through Kintaria, uh, which has made it quite a rich place. We know it's only a small town. The current, run, as, as we said, uh, Narokopolis is the house that runs the area, but Governor Opian Nevalindor is the one who runs Kentaria itself. One thing I really like about Kentaria, obviously it's under an evil rule right now, or lawful, lawful neutral, not necessarily evil. But the 10th act of the 11 acts of Yomaday was that Yomaday ruled Kintaria for a year and a day while it was under siege, successfully defending it. I'm sorry, I'm just nodding my head and I'm like, yeah. I'm just, <laughs> that's one of the things I love about Yomaday, but that's a very different story altogether. Uh, so having mentioned earlier, the Heartlands is basically all those territories I mentioned uh, south uh, this is where you have your uh, Whisperwood, the Barrowwood, the Central Plains, uh, and are the heart of Cheliax, thus the Heartlands. Uh, and it's also the largest of the Arch... the, mm, the Archduchies. D- duchies. There's a CH there. <laughs> I know there's a CH there. Archduchy, Duchies, Duchies. I just love that you're saying the CH different in both words, because there's still a CH twice. 
Yeah, archduchies. <laughs> Oof, that is... Like, I know it's weird, but it sounds weird. Anyway, uh, <laughs> skipping right over my inability to say the word archduchy. It's located in the central section of the nation. The heartland is the nation's breadbasket and contains the capital of Gorian. Gorian, I think we already talked about that at this point. If we didn't, uh, we can easily take a quick shift into Gorian as a city. Yeah, let's dive into it. We haven't actually talked about it yet, so... Yeah. And it's like, and, and there's so many cities that are such a big deal. Gorion's one of them. Uh, Kentargo, of course, because as you said, Iomide was able to hold Kent, uh, Kentargo. Kentria. West Crown is huge for reasons we'll get to in a bit. But no, Gorion itself, uh, which once was a tiny little uh, fishing village on the shores of Lake Soro, when first Taldor claimed Chiliax, uh, eventually grew to be the capital thanks to Queen Abigail moving it there, moving the capital city there in 4640 after the throne ascendancy which replaced obviously west crown which we'll talk about in a little bit uh, but it is now a sprawling metropolis uh, there's not a huge amount of cities within the pathfinder universe that get to claim the title of metropolis generally one per nation uh, but this is the metropolis of cheliax 82,100 people roughly predominantly human halfling and tiefling but also, I believe this is where you have sort of your uh, a little bit of a theocracy, the high priestess of Asmodeus, uh, a big a big feature in uh, in their in their court to the point where they punish and torture non infernal clerics. Is the leader of this uh, of this of the, the the people, and of course the ruler itself is Lord Mayor Gracchius Alazario. And the city itself is a mismatched combination, two different architectural designs and styles. You know, you got the older Imperial Chiliacs and the newer ones with the, the autocratic philosophy, a lot of the infernal touches. So you almost have like two cities kind of built on each other when you're here in this, in, in this city of uh, Agorian. And I really like that like the favorite construction material of this new city is the, like the red-veined black marble that is imported all the way from Arcadia. Absolutely. Listen, Shaliax knows their aesthetic. You know, we our two colors are black and red. We're we're a little quirky, and damn it, we're gonna die. We're gonna die for the vibe. And and they go hard into that. They really do. They definitely lean into it as hard as they can. And there is one. There is one part though, because again, you have old the old empire and the new empire, kind of in a juxtaposition in this city. In in the older parts of it, old Agorian. This is kind of the, the last vestige of that because nothing there is dedicated, or I'm sorry, the the places that are not stained by Asmodeus are in Old Igorian. Probably one of the few places that Chiliax has that isn't preserved of their their history before the demons, before the devils, I should say, became a part of their their uh, theocracy. All right, diving away from Igorian uh, and the Archduke of the Heartlands, we're going to dive over to the Archduke of Sermium. Sermium. Let's go with that. Uh, this will encompass uh, the edge of the Asphodel Mountains and the River Keld, which form a natural eastern border to Cheliax. This separates them from Andorin and uh, Nadal and Niskar and all of those lovely places. Uh, the capital city of the Archduke of Sermium is Ostenso, and it is run by House Hendothane. As we've established, uh, there's no common real-world ancestry tied specifically to Cheliax. It's a good mix of, even though, like, talking with some of the writers, it's a mix of Spanish, Greek, 
influences, generally speaking. Uh, you'll eventually get, occasionally get names like Henderthane, where you're just like, hmm, where the hell did that come from? It's the southern border of this archduchy is, of course, the inner sea itself, spanning from the Bay of Solva, the Bay of Deng, and Cape Erebus, a ch large chunk of the southern, in, inward-facing southern coast, basically the, the uh, land that faces more towards uh, Absalom. Mm -hmm. And the 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 city there, Ostenso, is a very. Uh, if, if you want to put this like in a, like a navy game. You know, for your home games, uh, Ascenso is the major port city of the southern coast, you know, just just east of Cape, uh, Cape Erebus. And mentioning previously, Chelyax has one of the most powerful navies, you know, uh, in in the game, if you will. The Chelish Navy is there, so if you want to put up a threat to your players, or if you want to really dive into what it's like to play a Chelish Navyman, seaman, whatever term you wish to use. Ostenso is a good place to put your Navy campaigns, as that is where they have the grand spacious docks to hold all their boats, and it makes up over like over a quarter of the city, and it just sprawls over the water of this entire area. You know, and again, you get halflings, tieflings, humans. The the government of Ostenso is called the Overlord, so you know, yeah, you're there for it's going to be good. Yep, you know, it's uh, going to be a dangerous one for that one. This was during the time of Taldor. The original capital of the province, Ostenso, which makes sense because Taldor was very much a navy-based civilization at the time. But they do do a lot of trade out of Ostenso as well, uh, with Assyrian, Absalom, and a bunch of the other Chelish cities scattered around. Diving across, PJ, the last of the Archduke duchies. Damn it, you got me doing <laughs> I that. I got you too. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, what's that one? The last of them. The last archduchy, I, I got it that time, is the Archduchy of Longmarch. And this is this is the, basically the, the southern border of Chelyax, uh, where the inner sea forms right there, and the port cities are built up on bluffs that dot the coast. Uh, it's the southern westernmost most part of the six, the six archduchies, right there the nation of Chelyax. It kind of encompasses the inner sea coast of the nation from, from the River Iseld in the east, and goes all the way through to the Hersbeck Strait, uh, down there by the delta of the Maestis River on the Arcadian Ocean. And it also stretches across to that little province on Garund. Oh, yeah, it's just, actually, you were reading my mind. I was just about to say, uh, it's the province, the province of Karajite, uh, Car, 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 I want to say it's called. Yeah, right there in northern Garund, yeah. And it's I find this one really, really interesting because to me... It, it literally sounds exactly the same as the Spanish peninsula, what is it, the uh, Isle of Gibraltar, and that's basically what the Chalaxians have done in Garund. You know, I think you're right too, and what's what's cool is that Gibraltar had so much going for it, at least throughout time, there's not a lot of details about the Archduchy, the Archduchy of Longmarch. It's definitely a good little little bit of water and trade, and it kind of leads through a lot of other territories. Uh, but aside from the capital being Corentin, uh, which we mentioned earlier, not a lot of other details of note about this place, at least not that I'm seeing in my research. It's touched on a hell of a lot in a bunch of different things. Like you, gotta, you get like a, a nice big chunk of Corentin is in the cities of Galerian. But any information you really get about this archduchy is about Corentin itself. As it is, and as we mentioned, it was the first settlement in Cheliax. Uh, from there, it kind of... That's where the Arch of Aridon leaves off from. Uh, and because of its major part in the history, you get a lot of information about it. Like it's also known as Port Indomitable. 
mm. in, the, in the city of Nine Forts. It's survived dozens of wars, and it's also the, one of the major trade centers and military outposts in Chelyax. It is a hugely important city. Uh, it is a large city, uh, and it's ruled over by House Carthagnian, and has been since the Thune Ascendancy. Uh, even during the Battle of a Hundred Kings, uh, when everyone was dragged into it, Corrington didn't really suffer that badly. Because it was, if the battle was just nearby, but it helped provide the defence for House Thune, which is kind of why they kind of got off as well as they did. But still, in a major place, there's a lot of things about it. As I mentioned, it's it's mentioned in almost every law background law book, the campaign settings, the Inner Sea World Guide, obviously Chelyax Infernal Empire, um, Cities of Galarian, Halflings of Galarian. Like, there's so many references to it in so many of the books. Uh, you can find a beautiful map of, of it as well, and this huge amounts of information if you do want to do a adventure there you've got millions of resources for it just not for the rest of the arts to touch you yeah and and that's and that's kind of the unfortunate thing because quarantine is such a fascinating chunk of the archduchy that we're not there's so much more we're not covering but i guess i guess when you're writing a story you, you don't want to distract from your core point which is quarantine's important because if you make the rest of the long march important then you're you're pulling too much focus so it makes sense i guess the the, the long and short of it is, quarantine's awesome. Don't go to Long March. Who cares? Exactly. All right, so that's kind of gives a wrap of our uh, dive into the geography and the different regions that you can adventure in. Uh, we're going to touch on a couple of organizations. There's two very specific that I think definitely worth a mention. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, the, one, the smaller one that I know we're not as... I know we really want to talk about uh, the Hell Knights, but I'm not going to dive into those straight away. I quickly want to touch on the Bellflower Network. Okay. So the Bellflower Network, as you mentioned before, there is thousands of halfling slaves all throughout Chelyax. The Bellflower Network is a secret society dedicated to freeing those halfling slaves. And that's made up of a huge network, not only of halflings, it's also made up of humans as well. And basically they have tr- they have routes that run through Andoran, through Rahadum, for the secret transportation of these slaves kind of like the Underground Railroad, uh, and this is kind of a reflection of that. This network includes members of the Eagle Knights as well from Andoran, who obviously themselves are very focused on emancipation and freedom as it is. And the leaders of this organisation are Farmer Magdalena Fellows and Martin, Fa- Martin Fellows, and any member is known as a tiller. It's one of the more interesting organizations, one that definitely I think there's probably a bit of conjecture I've seen on some of the forums as to the ethics, I guess, of something like this being in the game. Mm. But in these kind of games, in these fantasy worlds, slavery, as I have talked about before with Vanessa during our Absalom episode, slavery is part and parcel of the world as is. You can't just, rewriting it doesn't make it better. Or deleting it doesn't mean that it's not there and hasn't happened. It's an important thing that needs to be talked about and discussed and the reason behind it. And I think having a network like this that kind of does represent and reflect something that happened in the real world is also as important. Uh, and and that's a personal thing. I'm obviously I'm Australian. We didn't have as much of that. I'm not going to say we didn't have, it, have that, but it wasn't as big a thing for our country as it was for other countries that I'm aware of, and it might not be as affecting for someone like me, especially a white cis male, but it is still something that is important to talk about, and that's why I love the inclusion of this particular organisation. Yeah, what what I have to say, being, being a cis man 
and an American, this is something deeply tied to our history, whether we like it or not. And I'm not saying that means we need to preserve it. Not at all. And the thing is, I've heard people say this, so this is the only place I'm coming from this this, this argument, the only angle I'm coming with this discussion, because I also know that it is not my place or my understanding to have uh, really a... Uh, like a like a known or educated opinion, you know, I can only I can only know the facts and support what is right, which is what I want to do. I've heard people discuss about the revision. The problem with some revisionist histories, like like you've mentioned, if we create worlds and stories where there is no slavery, understanding that there are players who don't want to be reminded about that in their personal lives, right? Which that's valid. But having the other side of that to remove it entirely does strip away the lessons, the conversations, and those who need to dismantle that. So it's it's a hard it's a hard stance to take about whether or not it should or should be, and, and it really comes down to personal preference. And speaking of personal preference, the whole part about the Bellflower Network and this aspect of halfling slavery tragically tragic as it is is that it's optional to include if you are as a gm or a fan of ttrpgs are listening to your players and you're doing the lines and veils and the red yellow green and the x's you can decide that this entire narrative is not something anyone wants to deal with at the table for your game but it is there if someone's like you know what we need to really like dismantle this and 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 move forward from it Uh, i guess is my my little speech about that if you don't want it in your game, don't play Hell's Rebels. It is a strong center point to that entire campaign. Mm-hmm. Moving away from there, we are going to dive into the organization that everyone knows and loves about Cheliax. Uh, the one that I know that we've both done a hell of a lot of reading on. Me, because I played a Hell Knight in a Rise of the Rune Lords campaign just recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, because you ran games that included it. Let's dive into the Hell Knights and their orders. The Hell Yeah Knights. Hell Knights are very, very exciting. We kind of mentioned some of the geography of Chiliacs before and how those those pieces of geography are home to the Hell Knights, different orders, etc., etc. If you don't mind, I wouldn't... I'd kind of like to start off with, like, how the order kind of got started. Go for it. Sure. So I'm going to give you guys some, some bare bones here, and then we can go back and fill it in with some meat. Effectively speaking, uh, uh, Deity and Ruel, the first Hell Knight... Uh, was a worshiper of Aradin. Good guy. Good guy. And there was uh, basically this horrible thing called the White Plague. Just a bunch of murder-suicides. It was grim dark all over the place. And he was so mad uh, that this was going on. And he stopped the cultists and all these things th- that were causing it. Long story short, effectively speaking, uh, Ruel was made privy to how hell was structured, how the hells were structured, how devils did their bit, and saw something powerful there, that if he could harness the the devil's basically corporate infrastructure, he could do some good for the world. That was the hope. And with his history of being this righteous warrior and doing all these great things during the White Plague, you know, they they're like, cool, here's a a, a stronghold Go start this order. Go do good things, uh, and and then it just it just twisted. Uh, and I think that's really because, and this may have been what started his introduction into the hierarchy of hell's infrastructure. It was when his son died and was damned to hell, and in Avernus, 
just just an angry right well i don't say about righteous anymore i think when righteous becomes too angry becomes twisted and that's kind of what's fascinating about the hell knights they're meant to be a lawful good organization and because of the actions that they choose and the the leaders that rise in the organization that hold the topper rung of control for the different orders they're kind of more lawful neutral lawful evil because of the law that they try to impose. Because at the end of the day, the law is more more important than the good or the bad. Absolutely. They are... When I talk to people about the Hell Knights and, and about Cheliacs as the greater whole, if you will allow me to dip into another tabletop property, if you need another metaphor, think of the Space Marines and think of the Imperium of Man. Cheliacs... With a little bit of chaos worship, it's definitely the Imperium of Man. And the Hell Knights are 100% Space Marines. You got your... I mean, they're even... Uh, their ranks are even named with, like, Latin. Much like, you know, the library, the, the librarian, the chaplain, and all these folk are. And we'll probably cover that in a bit when we go deeper into the different orders and the different ranks. But they are a very fascinating group of complex individuals. Speaking of which, uh, we're, going to, we're just going to quickly go around the things that they kind of all follow before we dive into particularly the uh, major orders. The Measure in the Chain, uh, which is their list of the Codex of Duties, Laws and Crimes. The Measure serves as their guide to the strict ordered society, whereas the Chain is the philosophy that encourages discipline through trial, whether it's through tests of memorizing things, uh, meditating upon uh, the measure or exposing themselves to stress and pain depending on which order some are more prone to that part of it uh, and the chain kind of concerns itself with the three virtues of order discipline and mercilessness again leaning more into that really strong lawful neutral part lawful evil and the final part is in action basically they all try and strive to live by the tenets of the measure in the chain uh, whether they're among their peers and they repeat uh, their favourite maxims from the chain. They all occasionally fall short, but they do perform regular reckonings, which is part and parcel of choosing it as a class if you do choose to go that way, that kind of help realign them with the chain and the measure. Each one kind of goes through different things for their reckonings, which will kind of probably touch base quickly on each of the major orders at the very least. But the main thing to become a Hell Knight and this is probably one of the most terrifying things, is they must literally face one of the champions of hell in, in combat. Rules as written, that uh, creatures to be higher HD than them, uh, which for first edition, I'm only going to speak to first edition, uh, as you all know, at this point in time, I don't know crap about the second edition rule set, uh, but in first edition, basically, it has to be a high, higher HD, and most people at fifth level fight a six, level, a six HD bearded devil to gain entrance to become a hell knight but now pj take us through some of those major orders so we already discussed the order of the chain and what's interesting is that different orders have different symbols and and, and like uh like liam said a really good um description of what they're about uh, and, and other little attaches if you are a member of the order of the chain your weapon of choice will be a flail to kind of represent what it is you are about. And their symbol is a fist holding a, a blood-red chain. Their creed is all men lift themselves up upon the backs of others. And to kind of give you an idea, they are definitely the big law enforcer, but also they, they enforce some of the more uh, unfortunate laws too. You also have the Order of the Gate, and this is one of my favorite ones. 
the creed is judgment in the face of depravity. Uh, it's basically a giant open gate with a with a really creepy hellish eyeball. Now the order of the gate, uh, the hell knights of this order are really, uh, for one thing, they're usually powerful scryers and diviners, and they're there to kind of keep extra planar knowledge and viewing. The real modus operandi is trying to stop crimes before they happen. And most people kind of dismiss it as a metaphor. Like, oh, yeah, you're trying to... No, they, they really do want to uh, use magic to use... Basically, they're magic police, for lack of a better word. They're like magic They're basically cops. Minority Report. Yeah. Like Tom a, Cruise and Minority Report. A thousand percent Minority Report. And they use their, their scrying and their divination and all their spells to try to do that. There is also a lot of, like... I want to say a lot of casters, if it's not here, it's, it's the other orders, where they use their magic to really dive into hell. Uh, like, like, maybe you shouldn't do that. Next up is the Order of the God Claw. Uh, I'm going to take this one because it is one of my favorite ones. Oh, please do. So, all of them tend to worship law as a whole. Mm-hmm. God Claw, on the other hand, has chosen the five lawful gods to worship. The kind of symbol of divinity is this five-pointed iron star. They tend to focus some real religious zealots. Uh, Those five gods being Torag, Ayumade, Abadar, Asmodeus, and Aori. And those are the five gods of law. Their other alignments, the good, the the, uh, evil, not so important to the god claw. Weapon of choice is a morning star, and their whole thing is that they're experts in the five individual faiths, and their cause in Holy Mantra is that they will travel far to battle chaos in lands that know little of civilization. So they're all about essentially suppressing chaos wherever they can find it. Yeah, righteousness by obedience. Again, if you really want to have your badass fantasy space marine gameplay. And, and they're such a fascinating character and powerful, too. Definitely go with the Order of the Claw. The ends justify the means for these guys as well. Oh, 100%. Uh, and what's also interesting here, if you note, the the gods that they worship, or, the, or at least that they take into account, are gods from different uh, ancestry and racial pantheons. You know, you have Torag, who, to my knowledge, is a dwarven god. A dwarven god, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Asmodeus, so if you want to play the demon stick, you can. You got Abadar, the god of cities. Uh, Iomade, of course, so if you want to be healing. I'm thinking Sanray. And then Arori, the master of all um, from Vudra. Mm-hmm, exactly. So it opens up to a lot of fascinating roleplay potential as a player, that they're, they're that versatile, at least, you know, in their faith. Well, the next one is the Order of the Nail. Yeah, so this was actually the order that my Rise of the Rune Lords Hell Knight was part of. Favoured weapons for these guys are Lance or Halberd, and um, their symbol is thick nails forming a sunburst. Basically, the whole thing for the Order of the Nail is they essentially idealize the lifestyle and challenges of frontier settlers. So they are the ones you're most likely to find adventuring, apart from the Order of the God's Claw, who also are quite adventurous-based. But basically, no matter the displacement, indignation, or cruelty they might visit upon one who is there, they will seek out the foes of civilization, uh, braving darkness and thickets, and making those creatures fear them more than they fear than, than the people of the, of the uh, little settlement they're protecting 
fears those creatures. So they're all about really focusing on fear and knowing their enemy, knowing anything that could threaten small towns and really just being there to protect the frontier settlements of the world. Uh, they're also, interestingly, one of the few Hell Knight Orders. I think they're one of the, the largest Hell Knight Order that's not based in Cheliax. They're actually based in Corvo, just outside of Corvosa. And what's their, what's their saying? Their saying is, savagery must be quelled in the land, home, and mind. Yes, I like that. Yeah, because I really do get the feeling that since they are, they're, they're located in Citadel of Raid near Corvosa, uh, and, and they're kind of like the remote forces. They're definitely someone that would go after the monsters, the dragons, the, the, the creatures that would dare to threaten safety and security. And if you're a bandit in the way, you're probably going to get killed too. You're having a bad time. All right, I'm going to handball over to you, PJ, for the Order of the Pyre. Order of the Pyre. This one's also kind of cool. This is your cult hunters. Their symbol is what looks like a tower or a turret. Uh, if you will, the um, the rook in chess, it's bright red with a black fire going up it. Its creed is, Reason's flame consumes the shadow of corruption. They have a bunch of blades on their armor coming off. They usually have the horned helms. They carry a glaive as their weapon. Every order, generally speaking, has like their weapon of, of uh, identification. Uh, and of course, the reckoning, uh, specifically for them, is they have to kind of self uh self burn put over fire as i mentioned earlier these are the people that find and destroy cults they also stamp out uh <laughs> they stamp out they stamp out heresy basically anyone who goes against the idea of order or the idea of maybe the religious aspects of the order the irony is is that the most common deities are acceptable they 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 respect them as are all orderly philosophies so they they hunt down cults but they still respect diabolism so it's like if you're gonna worship asmodeus that's okay but if you're gonna worship a lesser known demon now that's bad and that's where they draw the line next up uh second last of the major orders we're not going to dive into the lesser orders today uh, because there's too many of them it's going to cover the major ones uh but the order of the rack uh, so these guys hate wastefulness of any kind. So they'll crush anyone's pointless dreams, They uh, the ones who end rebellions, and basically stop any kind of dangerous in- inventions and frivolous goings-on. Basically, they are closely aligned with hunting down individuals and stopping any of the sins, basically. If you're, if you're a big eater or you're a lust, you, you suffer from any of the sins of lust or wrath, or, these are the guys that are going to kind of stop you. Makes sense, considering they're so close to Verissia, uh, that they, you'd have an order focused on the stopping of a sin. Uh, their favorite weapon is a longsword. Now, their symbol is a spiked wheel. So, basically, these guys are like the technology haters, the patriots, the traditionalists, that just really go against everything that's artistic or outgoing or against the norm and pj you got their mantra for us the creed for the order of the rack is the venoms of the mind poison the body their their symbol is really cool too it's got like a little blood drop and like the let's see one two three four like five or six spokes coming off the blood drop it's kind of cool all right so can you finish us off with the order of the scratch please sir all right order the scourge their weapon of choice, if you if you couldn't tell by the name, is uh, a mace, scourge, or a whip. So first of all, they 
have no consequences for their action. We'll start with anonymity, no consequences. Every man becomes a criminal. That's another one of their big things, right? So they combat lawlessness basically by just being torturers. They employ a vast network of informants, bounty hunters, and, and they, they meet, they basically go out to grab people who have broken the law, especially if they got away with it, and they just break them. This was under the perfectionist of, of Elictor, which is one of their higher-ranking officers. This group does frequently travel from their domain in Agorian, which we mentioned earlier is kind of those two, those two worlds combined, the old and the new Cheliacs. And they, they just uh, go around uh, crime-ridden areas and just find law, like uh, criminal organizations, gangs, mafias. They just take them in and they just break them. So basically trying to stop corruption in any form, in any place that it can uh, start from. Perfect. And that kind of wraps up our dive into the Orders of the Hell Knights. Uh, If you do want to play a Hell Knight in first edition, you'll have to dive into the Inner Sea World Guide, or you can pull out the Prestige class as well from the Hell Knight campaign uh, book. Or, and I believe it's a archetype or something in second edition. Again, I'm not well versed enough on that to know, but I believe it can be a background that you can choose for your character. If you're interested in playing a Hell Knight in second edition, uh, in the Lost Omens character guide book in Pathfinder 2E, you can find a series of archetypes to build into your character, starting, of course, with the Hell Knight Armager, which is an organizational archetype, putting you in the Hell Knight organization. As you level up, you can eventually choose which order you want to join within Pathfinder 2E's Hell Knight group, uh, and that will also give you different abilities and perks. There are some prereqs. You have to be able to wear heavy armor and such, but if you take care of that as a war priest or a champion, it's a very easy buy-in, and this allows you some customization if you want to be the kind that casts the magic and scry and do the burning, or do you want to be the kind that just beats people with a weapon and really make them regret? So, a uh, simple archetype buy for the armager, and then you get to become a Hell Knight, and then you get to choose which order you join, and it's simple as that. All right, we're going to take one more musical break and then come back and let you know how you can play some adventure parts, modules, and society games in Cheliacs. We'll be right back. <laughs> Guys, welcome back. Uh, As mentioned, we're going to quickly take you through some of the adventures and things that you can play in Cheliacs. The first time Cheliacs appeared in print was for a 3.5 society module, Fingerprints of the Fiend. That was number 22 of Season 0 of the Society Games. There is also a bunch of other adventures throughout Cheliacs. We talked about last week how Andorians barely got any love. Cheliax has a lot of love. Society games, you got Day of the Demon, Fate of the Fiend, Fury of the Fiend. You got the Faithless and Forgotten campaign arc, all takes place within Cheliax, Orders from the Gate, and Out of Anarchy. You've also got a couple of modules. For 3.5, there's Beyond the Vault of Souls, which is an incredible one. Uh, it was written, obviously, very early in Paizo's uh, Breakout. And then you've also got No Response from Deepmar, which is written for the first edition. 
and from shore to sea module. You played any of those at all, PJ? Unfortunately, I have not been able to play most of those adventure paths, but uh, I would love to go there and try them out, go to those games and give it a shot. One thing we were talking about, obviously, was the Everwar uh, that you brought up. There's actually, so it's not based in Chelyax itself, but I thought it was a notable mention. There is actually a four-part society series from season one arc called Echoes of the Everwar, and it goes around to all of those places that Chelyax invaded. So you've got Prisoners of Skull Hill, which takes place in the Hold of Belkson, in an abandoned Chelish fort. Watcher of Ages, and these are all for like level 7 to 11. Then, yeah, the Watcher of Ages is the second one, and that kind of happens in a ruined fortress in western Chelyax. So that kind of does touch on Chelyax itself. Terror at Whistledown, which is a small gnomish town in Verissia. And then the Faithless Dead, which is in the city of Sothis in Assyrian. Uh, but that's a really interesting one because it kind of touches on a lot of the places that kind of they invaded during the Everwall. As you may or may not know, though, uh, there is three adventure paths that take place in Chelyax. As I said, as a counterpoint to Andorran, it's had a lot of love. You've got the Council of Thieves, uh, which touches on Chelyax quite a bit, even though it may not be necessarily based in it because it's based in Corvosa. It still has a lot of Chelyaxian influence. You've got Hell's Rebels, which takes place all across Kintago, and as I mentioned before, is the reason some of the things happened in the history of the world. And then finally, Hell's Vengeance, which will take you to almost every major city and every archduchy of basically the entire Chalaxian region. You're going to go to all of the major cities and have lots of fun. That is an evil-aligned campaign. Um, So it is designed for you to play the Diabolus, play those uh, more evil-aligned Hell Knights as you try and stop rebellions from these major cities. So that's a fun one to play in and run that is very, very different to pretty much every other adventure path out there. For second edition, got nothing. I literally have nothing for you guys at home, unfortunately. I could not find a single adventure path for second edition, sorry, not adventure path, a single society game for second edition that takes place in Chelyax. I think they gave it so much love in first edition that they've decided not to give it any right now for second edition. So I'm sorry. If I'm wrong, please feel free to uh, shoot me a message, email, whatever. But yeah, that's all I've got for adventures and modules. So we'll kick on to our last bit of the week. PJ, what is your favorite creature in the Pathfinder universe? So in the Fist, there will be Phoenix Adventure Path. Spoilers to anyone who's playing that. So don't listen unless you really want to figure out what this is. There's a CR-21 creature called the Spirit Turtle. Now, I, I love the, uh, the Trask as much as anyone else, but this creature is really cool. It is a gargantuan fey turtle. And what makes this thing so exciting is that, first of all, if you want to actually fight this sweetheart, good luck. He is extremely tough, strong. He's got amazing healing spells, and the damage output on this guy is gnarly. But the thing is, if you don't want to fight this guy... He's kind of like a, a narrative onto his own. He's got a bunch of quests to give, a lot of potential for storytelling, and he's just a sweet guy. If you've ever played Pokemon, uh, Diamond and Pearl, he's a lot like Torterra. The artwork is gorgeous. This giant turtle, he's even got like some, some trees and shrubberies on his back. And he's massive. And, and so I think that's why I like him. One, because he's extremely powerful. Two, He's also a sweetheart. And three, he reminds me of Torterra. And that just, you know, that just gives him bonus points. The triple threat. I love that. Uh, there is no one equivalent of him because he was only written for 
uh, that adventure path because that's where his stat block is in the King of the Mountain uh, adventure path book. But he does seem like a really interesting creature. I wouldn't want to fight him because I imagine the first edition version of him would be terrifying also. Uh, but he's also chaotic good, so there shouldn't be too much of a reason to throw down with the gargantuan turtle regardless. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary people, that wraps up our dive into the infernal country of Cheliax. We hope you enjoyed listening at home, or wherever you are. If you have any questions at all, feel free to shoot me a message through the Hobble Goblin podcast Facebook page, Instagram, or Twitter accounts. That's normally hobbled underscore goblin for Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'd like to once more thank PJ McGore. Where can people find and or watch you, mate? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, my name is PJ McGaw. I am uh, the GM for Nat 20 Productions. If you like what you saw and, and hear more of me and my friends play, we do Pathfinder 2nd Edition game on Wednesdays, 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time here in the United States of America. Uh, our Twitch channel is twitch.tv backslash Nat 20 Productions official. Or you can catch up with all the episodes and watch everything we do on our YouTube, which is Nat20 Prods, P-R-O-D-S. Nat20 P-R-O-D-S on YouTube. Uh, So hope you guys like it. Leave a comment or check us out live. And uh, we're currently doing a charity for children's cancer with St. Jude. So if you can check us out and support, hey, that's great. Look forward to seeing you. Amazing. Thank you very much for coming, PJ. I'll be back next week, of course, with another special guest. This time, we're going to be talking with Jeff from Rollmonger's Network. And we're going to talk about that most imperial empire, Taldor. I'm Liam. Good night, Galarian. Galarian.